0: The summer season of Mindful is coming to a close. This is the final episode of this season, and because I'm very lazy, I'm not even going to participate in this one. My name is Eric, I'm the communications person at the CPA, and this is Mindful. For this final episode of the season, we're going to talk about a new book that lays out eight innovations we can undertake right now in Canada to improve mental health access and care. Dr. David Goldblum's book is an easy and accessible read. Well, well, I'm told it is. As I said, I'm lazy and I haven't yet read it. So we're turning this episode of the podcast over to someone who has. Glenn Brimacombe is the Director of Policy and Public Affairs at the Canadian Psychological Association. Take it away, Glenn. Hi, everyone. My name is Glenn Brimacombe.
1: I'm Director of Policy and Public Affairs at the Canadian Psychological Association. Thanks for joining us today. Today, I am joined by Dr. David Goldblum. Dr. Goldblum, who is a psychiatrist, is the senior medical advisor at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, affectionately known as CAMH, where he maintains an active clinical and teaching role. He is a graduate of Harvard University, Oxford University, and McGill University, where he trained in medicine and psychiatry. He is a past chair of the board of directors of the Mental Health Commission of Canada, and is currently a board member of the Graeme Beck Foundation, Jack.org, and the CAMH Foundation. He is also an officer of the Order of Canada. Dr. Goldblum has authored many scientific articles and textbook chapters and has recently written two books about mental health. The first was How Can I Help? A Week in My Life as a Psychiatrist in 2017, and more recently, just a couple of months ago, released We Can Do Better, Urgent Innovations to Improve Mental Health Access in Care, which is the primary reason for our conversation today, is to discuss his new book. Welcome, Dr. Goldblum. I'm delighted to be chatting with you today.
2: Glenn, it's a pleasure to be with you again.
1: Why don't we start uh, at the top in the sense of better understanding the raison d'être. What motivated you to write this book?
2: Well, Glenn, to be honest, after the first book, A Week in My Life, uh, I didn't think the general public was interested in a second week in my life. And frankly, I thought there was something else that I needed to uh, convey to readers. And really, my intended audience for this goes well beyond my professional colleagues in mental health to the general public because uh, mental health and mental illness are so much more on the minds of many Canadians. And I feel as I approach the latter phase of my career, a kind of uh, urgency to see things better on the landscape. And as somebody who has the good fortune to work in an academic environment, I'm very well aware of research and innovation that is happening both where I work, but more broadly across Canada and internationally. And it really led me to ask the question of why aren't some of the things that are demonstrating their value being scaled up and implemented more broadly? I often say that Canada is the land of pilot projects. And the problem with that is they may do tremendous good where they are, but they don't get universalized. And as a consequence, we have great things happening in pockets across the country, but there may be wonderful things happening. uh, Let's say, as an example, the, the counseling center in Calgary that are unknown to people working in New Brunswick or innovations in Nova Scotia that are less familiar to people out West. And that's quite apart from innovation that's happening uh, across international borders. And so in writing this book, I wanted to kind of galvanize people. Uh, I also wanted to give people hope that things can in fact be better than they are now. And uh, you know, that was really, the purpose of of putting the book together well in your book you document
1: document eight different innovations and i'll say in very accessible language so it's written in a way that draws in the readers so congratulations well, thank to you for you. doing that thank um you. what knowing that we are the land in some ways of pilot projects and we need um additional scaling up of these innovations are there specific key ingredients that are missing in this recipe to move beyond just islands of excellence, pockets of excellence, to universalizing, to use your language, to improve the system?
2: Well, look, there's the constitutional reality that we face as a country in terms of healthcare, which is that we affect, even though we talk in Canada about having universal health care and a national system, the reality is we have separate healthcare systems for the provi- each of the provinces and territories and so that creates uh, tensions and differences and it creates challenges when you're trying to see something spread however i remain uh, an optimistic guy and one of the reasons i remain optimistic is some of the examples i've seen of overcoming Interprovincial and territorial boundaries. So, one of the examples I talk about in the book, which is in fact to me one of the biggest transformations of youth mental health in Canada, is the development of integrated youth services. And this initiative really began with a project co funded by uh, the Graham Beck Foundation in Montreal and the Canadian Institutes for Health Research. There was a very keen competition for a grant of $25 million that ultimately went to Dr. Ashok Mala at McGill and his colleagues uh, who started the project called Access Open Minds. And this was about developing integrated youth services in a way that is different than our traditional routes to providing youth mental health care. And what's really striking about that national project is that it ran in six provinces and territories. So it wasn't stuck in one jurisdiction. And it straddled urban and rural settings, indigenous and non-indigenous settings. And so I thought, wow, this is really... A great example of how we can do things in a somewhat national scale. And even before the final results of that study are in, because it was, among other things, a research study, there has been a mushrooming of integrated youth services happening across the country. So the Foundry Initiative in British Columbia, uh, Integrated Youth Uh, Wellness Hubs Ontario, Uh, all of these are examples of rapidly scaling up services, where for young people, uh, the traditional waiting time for access to services can be like months to even years, which when you think of the denominator being how old a young person is, that's an unconscionable wait time. And at these integrated youth services sites, wait times are really measured in hours to days. And it's a place where young people can show up without an appointment. And uh, they show up to an environment that is a very non-traditional one because young people and families participate in the design and oversight of these hubs. So it's a very different model. It's a model that really started in Australia quite some time ago with Patrick McGorry and his Headspace initiative. And they now have over 100 sites across Australia. And my guess is five years from now, I wouldn't be surprised if we have 100 sites across Canada delivering uh, services to uh, young people who are struggling. And not only are they delivering services, they're also tracking who is accessing those services. And we're finding out it's exactly the kind of young people who might, in fact, feel marginalized in traditional clinical service settings.
1: I want to pick up on a couple of points that you've raised that are, I think, really kind of part and parcel of the, the Canadian challenge. One is the notion of, Um, national solutions in a world where in effect, we have 13 to 14 independently run healthcare systems. And is there an opportunity for the federal government to thread the needle more effectively in terms of actually galvanizing solutions across the country? And the second piece um, is the whole issue of leadership and change management. And this can, I largely see it more in the provincial territorial systems themselves. Is there more that leaders can be be doing either within the mental health community, community, politicians, uh, academics? How do we um, uh, take advantage of the momentum that is clearly focusing on mental health and substance use these days?
2: Right. You know, if I actually knew the correct answer to that question... I probably wouldn't be in my day job <laughs> seeing patients and teaching and stuff like that. However, uh, as you know, I had the opportunity when I was involved with the Mental Health Commission of Canada to really meet with ministers of health uh, across the country, uh, as well as federally. And what I was struck by was the appetite for um doing things better, and I think COVID has been a huge accelerant for so many changes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, as you know, uh, when we went through SARS, people were not talking about the mental health impact of SARS the way they are talking about the mental health impact That's of right. COVID. And we know that demand is ramping up, and governments play pay close heed. To demand, And, you know, if we look at uh, successes around funding and innovation for cancer, for HIV, that wasn't just leaders taking charge. That was about people making noise, people saying this is a problem and campaigning and fundraising and all those things uh, and uh, leaders in the treatment community speaking up activists speaking up, so we need a whole lot more of that. Now, I think there are uh, some encouraging signs. You know, we've seen probably as the run-up to the election becomes more obvious, the uh, sudden uh, sprouting of national child care agreements being done in various provinces. Is it an election issue? Sure, it will be. But it's also, I think it's a mental health issue. It's an uh, early intervention issue. And that is an example of how the federal government can catalyze changes in provinces where things are under provincial jurisdiction. And we certainly saw in uh, the budget that was brought down when Jane Philpott uh, was negotiating the provincial Federal Health Accord, the designation of funding for mental health in the federal transfers. And that was really unprecedented. So it can be done, except that there has to be the follow through. There has to be an accounting for where the money was spent. But also, importantly, something we don't do enough of in Canada, did it do any good? Did it move the needle? And that really takes me into talking about another innovation from the UK, led by a psychologist, perhaps now in Canada, the best-known British psychologist, David Clark of Oxford University, who, uh, coupled with the economist Richard Laird, developed the Improving Access to Psychological Therapies initiative, which I would say is also a huge transformation, and it involves the uh, uh, funding and implementation of structured psychotherapy uh, that people can access under the public purse through their local health trust. And uh, not only can they access it, they don't need to be referred by their family physician. They can self-refer so it sort of cuts out the middleman and what's really striking about that initiative and i think not enough people uh, know about it although i'm sure uh, members of the cpa are familiar with it but i when i communicate about it it's to a general audience is that in recent years they've been assessing a million people a year and about 600,000 of them go into Uh, various types of short-term psychological treatment for anxiety, depression, PTSD, other problems, health anxiety. And what's really striking and what's missing in Canada is that there is a regular, systematic, and publicly accountable outcome measurement so that you know whether people are getting better. You've got the evidence that people are getting better. And if you're curious as a potential client or patient about your local health trust, you can see what their numbers are like. And you can see what they're like in other areas. So they have data, not simply on the end of treatment, but after each session. And their their capture rate is 98.5% which is kind of staggering. Imagine if we had for any kind of health intervention in Canada, publicly accountable outcome data for 98.5% of those interventions. It's it's unimaginable, but the point from Britain is that it's doable. And it's doable in a way that is also publicly funded.
1: You know, an excellent and the issue of uh, having effect effective metrics in the mental health delivery system in this country is a huge issue and it's still a huge opportunity quite frankly for an agency like the canadian institute for health information to get more involved because they have the capacity and it truly is a national agency where the provinces and territories are shareholders of that organization one of the things i did hear you say though is There are opportunities when it comes to psychology in terms of an expanded role, perhaps playing to their full scope of practice. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but when you talk about the innovations and the different mental health disorders and substance use disorders, I'm wondering if you can give the listener a a better sense of where there are opportunities moving forward for psychology.
2: Well, I think that there are lots of opportunities for psychologists are, uh, after all, as a group are probably our single best trained practitioners of some of the evidence-based psychotherapies. And uh, certainly the one that is uh, the sort of best known or most widely celebrated, and indeed the focus of most research is cognitive behavioral therapy. And so uh, the ability to provide Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy individually, or in a group context, but within the confines of measurement and shorter term treatment. These are uh, essential roles for psychologists. However, and there's a big however, if you take a look at the improving access to psychological treatments initiative, or in Canada, the uh, strongest families institute one of the key elements to the success of these initiatives has been the development of new cadres of mental health professionals that these are not in the main phd level mental health professionals who are providing the bulk of treatment and part of that reflects i think the reality that we can it's a long process to churn out a PhD psychologist, an MD psychiatrist. That's a long, long journey. Mm -hmm. And we will never have enough of them to meet mental health needs. And I would argue, nor should we. And I'm not talking about psychology alone. I'm talking about psychiatry as well. I think that these highly, highly specialized disciplines should, in fact, be reserved for the people with the most Challenging problems. And, you know, there's a study, a famous study out of Texas, where they took people with an undergraduate degree, gave them about 40 hours of training in cognitive behavioral therapy, and then set them up with supervision. And uh, they treated people with geriatric depression with cognitive behavioral therapy. And they were compared to PhD psychologists in a randomized design. Now, they were closely supervised and I'm sure the supervisor was a PhD psychologist and the outcomes were no different. So there is evidence that we can train people uh, to play an important therapeutic role without them having to go the full nine yards of advanced training as a PhD psychologist or a psychiatrist. But what what concerns me is the potential for mismatch. And the mismatch would be uh, easy people to treat with the most advanced trained individuals, right? Because that presents a huge opportunity cost. There are other people who need those specialized skills more. And in the stepped care model, we want to find the least intrusive, least invasive, least expensive intervention that we can rapidly deliver to produce a measurably good outcome. And only the people who don't get better with that move up to the next level. Right. Thank you.
1: I have a couple more questions and and I won't keep you any longer. Um, But I'm wondering where you see, as we wind down uh, on hopefully what is a post-pandemic world towards the end of this year, what's your sense with regard to the demand for mental health care that will occur between now and let's say the next 12 months? Do you see it being a, you know, a growing tsunami or do the issues of people are very resilient and will be able to um, take care of themselves? And then there's those that in the middle that may need some form of treatment, whether it's mild to moderate to severe. I'm just curious uh, if you could crystal ball it just a bit on the basis of what
2: you see as a practitioner. Well, rather than crystal ball it, let me instead a uh, quote to you from a psychologist at Simon Fraser University, Lara Ackman, And Lara is the lead author of an article that's in press right now in Perspectives in Psychological Sciences. And uh, so I've been able to read her preprint. And she was the first author of the Lancet Psychiatry Commission on Mental Health post-COVID. So this Mm -hmm. was really an international group of people. And Lara not only was the first author of the scientific paper, the latest issue of the Atlantic magazine, where I get a lot of my scientific information, has an article in which she is again the lead author, along with a psychologist from Stanford and another psychologist from UBC, called The pandemic did not affect mental health the way you think. Uh, with the subtitle, the world's psychological immune system turned out to be more robust than expected. So what is it that they discovered? And Hmm. this uh, to me was incredibly fascinating. And they looked at all the available data from around the world from both longitudinal surveys of mental health, and cross-sectional surveys of mental health. And they their conclusion was the evidence showed that psychological distress obviously went way up during the early months of last year in the pandemic. So much so that when you see numbers that say, you know, 40% of the population feels anxious, that's way beyond anxiety disorders. That's a normal response to an external threat that scares the hell out of people, right? And what they found though, was that most of the measures of psychological distress had returned to pre-pandemic levels later in 2020. And Mm -hmm. that there was lots of evidence for resilience in terms of life satisfaction social connection, and importantly, no increase in suicide rates in over 20 nations. We were really worried about the so-called deaths of despair. Those deaths attributable to suicide, alcohol abuse, and drug overdose. Now, I don't want to diminish in any way the reality that we have a huge opioid crisis in this country and it has gotten worse during the pandemic, but suicide uh, rates have not gone up. What they did acknowledge in this study is that either experiencing COVID or being near somebody with COVID or losing your job and being out of money or spending all your time homeschooling or just reading endlessly about COVID, which could turn into a 24 hour a day job, was associated with more psychological distress and worse well-being. By contrast, what they found was associated with better mental health, was the things that we've been talking about and encouraging people to do. Exercise, go for a walk, spend time outside Read a book, and more. And another important thing: volunteer, be useful. All right. Now, I feel like as a as a mental health professional, like any of the psychologists tuned into this call, I'm trying to do my bit uh, to help out during the pandemic. But it it's my job. I found that the highlight of my week in the last couple of months. Has been working in our vaccination clinic, jabbing people with Pfizer and Moderna for uh, a half a day at a time. And, you know, I, I've been thinking about why is this so pleasurable? And part of it is I'm not seeing them on video, I'm actually right next to them. So there's that restoration of human contact with patients and with colleagues. Uh, Number two, it's actually really easy to vaccinate somebody. It's embarrassingly easy. I think I could train a high school student in about 10 minutes. Uh, Number three, it's not often in our careers as mental health professionals. In fact, it's unheard of that every hour, 12 people say thank you, and they really mean it. Right? I mean... It 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 is a wonderful thing to vaccinate yeah. someone and feel like you're welcoming them to a safer harbor. It's a great feeling. So uh, what's interesting is these psychologists who wrote this big review, when they talked about what we need to do now, what we need to do going forward. And frankly, I trust them rather than my own crystal ball on this. They said, first of all, we better stay on top of understanding the mental health implications of COVID. We already know that there's a subset of people who develop long COVID and with bad mental health implications. And, you know, if you look back to the last great pandemic in uh, the early part of the last century, the great influenza pandemic that Mm -hmm. killed between 30 and 70 million people the mental health fallout from that was substantial and extensive they said that uh, quite apart from screening for mental health symptoms in people who've survived covid that we need to as a country prioritize child care uh, and elementary school in terms of making those safe places for young people because The fallout when those kids can't go for their uh, parents and families is substantial. Now, they also made some bold statements about what we need to do. They said, look, we need to invest in mental health in such a way that someone who's mentally ill should have the same access to evidence-based treatments as somebody who is physically ill, which may seem painfully obvious as a statement or as an ideal, but it sure is not the reality in Canada. And that's something we have to change. They also advocated specifically for the availability of online cognitive behavioral therapy as a tool that really transcends geography and many barriers. Now, There is still a group of people in our country who do not have reliable access to broadband or hardware or software to make that possible. And we must never lose sight of those most disadvantaged people in our pursuit of the wired people who can take advantage of things like that. So this is not about doing away with our traditional services. This is about expanding and as the, to use that shop-worn phrase, building back better. And then so, finally, you know, improving access to services outside of our traditional settings, whether that's schools or places of work, uh, that uh, people need to be able to get help locally better than they're getting it now.
1: That's very well said. and well, It
2: wasn't said by me. It was said by the psychologists. Well said, who let uh, me rephrase.
1: That, that was a very good summary, okay. Dr. Goldblum. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in terms of what you were just saying, let alone the, the eight innovations that you were talking about, even the title of your book is optimistic. So I'm just wondering, what drives your sense of optimism? Uh, in terms of the future that, yes, we can and we must do better when it comes to access to care?
2: Okay. Well, I guess, first of all, I think a a, a knowledgeable psychologist would probably say a lot of it is temperament. <laughs> that I, I have a certain degree of inborn optimism and that I come from multiple generations of optimistic pediatricians. So some of that is in my DNA for sure. But I think the the remainder really comes from having been in this field for 35 years, having seen clear signs of progress, having uh, benefited from the opportunity to work in a really richly multidisciplinary environment my entire career, and to know that there are things that, occupational therapists, that social workers, that psychologists do, that are different than what psychiatrists do, but the ultimate beneficiary are our patients. And uh, I see lots of young professionals uh, coming up the ranks in mental health care, and their readiness to do things differently, as opposed to uh, me still clinging to my fountain pen. Uh, their their readiness to do things differently is part of what gives me hope. And I think the other thing that gives me hope is a public that is increasingly fed up with the status quo, uh, ready to make noise. Jack.org is a perfect example of a make some noise organization that is yes. you know mushroomed to 200 chapters across Canada Uh, lobbying for better youth mental health services. So uh, I feel the change is very much in the wind.
1: Thank you for that. So uh, that brings us to a conclusion of our conversation. Are there any final words that you want to offer our listeners today?
2: You know, you talked about the title being We Can Do Better. And uh, I, I was interviewed by somebody else and they asked me, well, which word are you emphasizing there? Because it changes the meaning. And I thought about it and I said, all four words have equal emphasis. We, because this is about all of us. This is not simply waiting for government to do things. This is all of us who have family members who've experienced mental illness or who've struggled with it ourselves. This is all of us can because it actually is possible we've got examples within canada and beyond that show this is feasible do because it's about action not talk it's not about preparing another commission or report and better because the status quo is unacceptable
1: terrific very well said succinct um Well, on behalf of the CPA, let me thank you for your time. Um, Congratulations again on a terrific book, and I hope everyone who's listening will have an opportunity to read it. Um, And hopefully we'll get a chance to see you in the future.
2: I hope so, Glenn, and thank you for a very stimulating conversation.
0: Thanks to Glenn and Dr. Goldblum for closing out this summer season of Mindful we will be back in the fall. Keep us on your subscription list. Today's episode was written and hosted by the CPA's Director of Policy and Public Affairs, Glenn Brimacomb It was produced, edited, and published by me, Eric Bollman. Our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor. See you in the fall.